So Nick, the University of Michigan incoming intern class has done a really amazing thing that they've wanted us to be involved in, and I'm super excited about this. This goes to show, I think, Faye, this this podcast obviously has exceeded our wildest dreams, and we're so happy that people are thrilled with it. And starting next week, we now have the Creogs Over Coffee Intern Challenge. Yep. So far, the month of June, there are 19 episodes that the University of Michigan incoming intern class has put out so that other incoming interns can learn about certain topics that will be impactful for their intern year. And so first up on June 1st is going to be episode nine, perioperative care and optimization for GYN patients. So follow along with them on social media too, because they'll be reviewing the high points from each episode to get you ready for your intern year or Faye for us, the board's on July 16th. So be sure that if you're on Twitter or Instagram to go and search for hashtag OBGYN intern challenge to follow along with all of these episodes. Faye, are you excited to move to Philadelphia and start this fellowship up? I'm super excited to move to Philadelphia, leaving Rhode Island after 12 years. It's been a long time, but you know, I think one of the things that has led to success in Rhode Island, and I hope as I move on to Seattle, is having the OBG project in my back pocket. Definitely. I've had so much help from them um, with the emails that they send, with relevant topics and new articles that are coming out every day, and also with the library on their website through OBG First, where I keep all of my favorite articles and resources so that I can go back and visit them. With this new rising chief resident class, you too can go get OBG First, which is the premium subscription project from OBG Project, absolutely free. Head on over to our website at creogsovertocoffee.com. Check out the sidebar and figure out how you can get signed up for a whole year of free OBG First. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. All right, so today's episode, we're going to jump into obstetric anesthesia and analgesia. I know everybody's absolute favorite topic that we know nothing about. So Faye, what are we going to learn today? <laughs> so today we're going to talk about the different types of anesthesia and analgesia for our laboring patients. We're going to discuss the risk and benefits of each type. And finally, we're going to talk about who can and can't get regional anesthesia and also what to do with patients on anticoagulant medication, which we already covered a little bit um, in our last episode. Uh, for those of you that are following along with some reading, this also goes along with Practice Bulletin 209. All right, Nick. So first of all, why do we care about labor anesthesia and analgesia? I mean, this is an OB podcast. It's not an anesthesia podcast. Well, I mean, I have never labored before, obviously, and never expect to labor in my life. But having seen labor, it seems like it hurts, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Pain from labor in all seriousness can be visceral pain, it can be somatic pain, particularly in the second stage of labor as the fetus is coming down to the perineum. Um, That pain is relayed primarily through the putendal nerve and nerves coming from the S2 to S4 nerve roots. There's also a discrepancy with rating of pain and rating of satisfaction with pain relief in certain trials. And this is possibly because there's varying patient expectations for pain control and labor experience. So even though 
we as obstetricians may not be directly in control of the actual nuts and bolts of obstetric analgesia and anesthesia. Um, It is important for us to have a good baseline understanding because that allows us to frame expectations for our patients as well as to talk to them intelligently about their options in prenatal care. So Faye, sort of going along with that, what things do we have available? So let's break this down into all the different types of anesthesia and analgesia. So first of all, we have parenteral or systemic analgesia. So that's like IV pain medication. There's regional or neuroactyl analgesia and anesthesia. There's local anesthesia, inhaled agents, and finally general anesthesia. So I'm going to go over all of these. Um, So parenteral or systemic analgesia is kind of your run-of-the-mill opioids, um, Phenergan, things like that that you can give for pain. But unfortunately, they have little effect on maternal pain scores and provide unreliable analgesia and can have adverse effects, things like feeling dizzy, feeling sleepy, nausea, vomiting, things like that. So you've probably heard of all of these pain medications before since you may have also used them for your laboring patients, but these things include fentanyl, morphine, butorphanol, or statol. Um, And again, a Cochrane review has not found the ideal parenteral opioid. And though there is some pain relief with parenteral systemic analgesia with these medications, it's overall poor. Um, And finally, opioids do cross the placenta. And so there can be some adverse effects on the fetus. Uh, We know that these drugs take longer to eliminate in the newborn and also can cause respiratory depression if administered close to the time of delivery. Next, I'll talk about regional analgesia and anesthesia. And this is things that we're used to. So like your epidural, your spinal, or even your combined spinal epidural analgesia. More than 60% of women with singleton births in the United States get an epidural or a spinal. So certainly um, this is very, very common. And I think in our hospital, it's somewhere closer to like 80% of women getting epidurals. So an epidural is a placement of a catheter into the epidural space. And you can have repeat or continuous administrations of medications through that catheter. And it's usually the medication is a mixture of an opioid and a local anesthetic. A spinal, on the other hand, is a single injection of an opioid local anesthetic or both into the subarachnoid space. This is usually used for C-sections and not for labor because the single injection will have a limited time frame in, of use. And finally, there's the combined spinal epidural analgesia where you inject into the subarachnoid space and also place a catheter for ongoing analgesia. This is usually used because of rapid onset of pain relief. So if someone who is really, really uncomfortable while they're in labor, it's nice to have them to have that initial bolus to get their pain under control and then allowing them to continue to have that benefit of the epidural repeat dosing. All right, Nick, talk to me a little bit about the other types. What about local anesthesia? Yeah, so local anesthesia can kind of break down into two primary choices. We're probably all very familiar with using local infiltration of anesthetic for laceration repair. Again, just using something like lidocaine or bupivacaine for that purpose. Another choice, though, in local anesthetic um, is a pudendal nerve block. So this is the application of local anesthesia um, transvaginally into the vicinity of the pudendal nerve just below and medial to the ischial spines. Usually this is reserved just for the second stage of labor. Um, This also, though, can help with laceration repairs. In my own experience with third-degree laceration repairs, this is actually a really, really nice option to have, even for anesthesia beyond the length of epidural. Next up in our anesthetic choices are inhaled agents. Um, Nitrous oxide is probably the most familiar and most discussed. 
most applications of nitrous oxides will be a combination of 50% NO gas and 50% oxygen with a demand valve. So nitrous oxide can only be inhaled when the patients are actually using the mask. And again, many places have safety protocols where the patients have to be holding the mask themselves. They're taught about how to breathe in and out of the mask. That way there's not leakage of nitrous gas. Trying to maintain safety with that. Analgesis provided by nitrous oxide is less effective than an epidural when you look at pain scores, but it actually is superior when you talk about things like mobility because patients can still move around when compared to the epidural. Um, nitrous oxide is also superior in the sense that it has a quick termination of effect, meaning with inhaled gas going, the effect is out of your system within about five minutes or so. Um, and so it's something that is a quick on, quick off, um, and can be useful, again, even for things like laceration repairs um, or just a quick bit of anxiolysis during second stage. Lastly, in terms of our anesthesia choices, general anesthesia, certainly this is a pretty uncommon and unconventional choice for vaginal delivery. Um, this is more likely to be encountered with an emergent cesarean section. Um, the main issue, though, with general anesthesia is twofold. Number one, the agents that are used for general anesthesia generally cross the placenta and will transfer to the fetus, again, causing risk of respiratory depression. Secondly, dealing with the airway of a pregnant patient is difficult um, for anesthesiologists because there are a significant number of airway changes, but probably most notably increased airway edema that can lead to difficult intubations and bleeding at the time of intubation. Um, so again, generally not the first choice or the preferred choice, but sometimes necessary for an emergent delivery. Okay, Faye, so we've talked now about the choices in anesthesia and all of the things that we have. What about sort of, again, when we counsel folks, particularly with regional analgesia and anesthesia, what risks should we be thinking about? We always want to think about both the mom and the baby when we are talking about risks. Just to kind of put it out there, the overall risk for regional analgesia, so spinal epidurals, combined spinal epidurals, are very, very low for both. For mom, just looking at some data, there was a registry that was collected over a period of five years. It ended in 2009. In over 300,000 recorded cases of regional anesthesia use, there were 157 complications. They did see that there were 30 maternal deaths in this cohort, but none of these were actually attributed to anesthesia. There were two cardiac arrests attributable to anesthesia, four cases of epidural abscess or meningitis, one episode of epidural hematoma, and 10 failed intubations. There was no cases of aspiration. And then out of these, there were 58 high neuraxial blocks. So overall, if you're thinking, you know, one epidural hematoma out of greater than 300,000 recorded cases of anesthesia use, that is a very, very low risk overall. Um, there were uh, more things like minor complications such as itching or pruritus, epidural headaches, hypotension, and nausea, vomiting. So those are the things that you can counsel your patients are much more likely to happen than all of the bad things that we previously listed. 
For baby, the risks of anesthesia are usually related to maternal effects of hypotension or transplacental passage of analgesic or anesthetic drugs. So as we said before, opiates can lead to neonatal depression, things like respiratory depression, decreased muscle tone, and decreased sucking. And also there may be some alterations to the fetal heart tracing that can be seen with certain types of uh, analgesic medications like opioids um, and also potentially uh, fetal bradycardia due to maternal hypotension after that initial 15 minutes following a spinal epidural analgesia. Okay, Nick, so uh, I know sometimes we like get into fights with our anesthesiologists or otherwise lovely people, but we sometimes get into fights with them because we're like, this person needs an needs a spinal or this person needs an epidural. And they're like, nope, we are not going to be able to give this person an epidural. So what is their reasoning behind why someone can't get regional anesthesia? Yeah, so there are a couple of possibilities. So we'll discuss them all. Probably the first and in my experience, the most common um, is thrombocytopenia. Um, thrombocytopenia is a relative contraindication to neuroaxial anesthesia, um, but a safe lower limit for a platelet count hasn't been established. Um, one study that really looked at the risk of epidural hematoma in obstetric patients was somewhere between 0 to 0.6% when platelets were between 70 to 100,000 per micron, but stated that the data was insufficient to assess risk when platelets were below 70,000. Um, so in most cases, epidurals and spinals would be considered if the platelets are above 70,000, as long as those platelets are stable. Um, again, is a discussion all the time. I think that some places will choose 70, some places will choose 80, um, some places may even choose 100, I don't know, um, but somewhere in that range. Low-dose aspirin is something that also is a common question, really, I think, more from patients in terms of whether that's going to affect their ability to get an epidural and because it's so much more commonly used in pregnancy these days, we're happy to report that low-dose aspirin is not a contraindication to neuraxial blockade. So continue your aspirin, get your epidural. Faye, let's spin it back now and harken back to a recent episode talking about anticoagulation and neuraxial blockade. So anticoagulation by itself is not a contraindication to neuraxial technique. You do need to wait for a period of time before it is safe to place uh, epidural catheters and do spinals. So we're going to break this down again to unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin, so heparin and Lovenox at our institution. There's very low risk to proceed with neuraxial anesthesia in prophylactic or intermediate doses of unfractionated heparin. Usually for prophylactic dosing, you should wait um, 12 hours after the last dose before you can place an epidural. And even for high doses of infractionated heparin, you usually will wait 24 hours after the last dose to place the epidural. If these patients have been taking unfractionated heparin for greater than four days, you should do a platelet count to make sure that they are not at risk for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And then you can then resume their unfractionated heparin um, after one hour after the epidural catheter has been removed. In terms of low molecular weight heparin, for prophylactic dosing, waiting at least 12 hours before placement of the epidural catheter, and for therapeutic dosing, 24 hours. And then again, you can resume the low molecular weight heparin four hours after catheter removal. The other thing that we sometimes have our patients go and see our anesthesia colleagues about are space-occupying brain lesions. Um, so there could be a contraindication here because there's a possibility that dural puncture can lead to increased intracranial pressure, which can then lead to hind 
brain herniation. However, not all space-occupying lesions result in increased intracranial pressure, and so if the patient has imaging that shows no mass effect, hydrocephalus, or other features suggestive of increased intracranial pressure, then the risk of herniation is minimal and epidural analgesia or anesthesia can be considered. All right, Faye. I think we've covered obstetric anesthesia and analgesia and all the exciting things they're in. Let's summarize. All right. So the first thing we talked about is why we care about labor anesthesia and analgesia. And frankly, it's because labor is painful. Um, And also discussing pain and pain management with our patients beforehand is going to improve their satisfaction and experience of labor overall. We next moved on to what's available. So broadly, we have parenteral or systemic analgesia, so your IV pain medicines such as opioids, um, regional and neuraxial anesthesia, which is certainly the most common thing. Over 60% of women with a singleton birth in the United States get an epidural or spinal anesthetic. Local anesthesia in the form of either just local infiltration or a pudendal nerve block. Inhaled agents such as nitrous oxide and then general anesthesia as the choice for emergent cesarean delivery, potentially depending risks and benefits of neuraxial blockade. Risks of regional analgesia and anesthesia is overall very low for both mom and baby. For moms, the um, more common things to happen are the minor complications, things like itching, epidural headaches, maybe some uh, hypotension or nausea vomiting, though other um, other complications like epidural abscess, meningitis, hematomas, and high neuraxial blocks are very, very uncommon. For baby, the risks are usually related to maternal effects of hypotension or transplacental passage of analgesic or anesthetic drug, and this can lead to things like neonatal depression or alterations in the fetal heart tracing. In terms of who cannot receive regional anesthesia, one of the most common questions from an obstetrician to an anesthesiologist, thrombocytopenia is considered a relative contraindication as the safe lower limit of a platelet count hasn't been established, but this is estimated to be somewhere between about 70 to 100,000 based on one study that showed a risk of epidural hematoma around 0 to 0.6% in that range. Low-dose aspirin is not a contraindication to neuraxial blockade. For folks who are on anticoagulation, again, if they're on a prophylactic dose, meaning unfractionated heparin um, at 5,000 units BID or low molecular weight heparin, anticoagulation should be held at least 12 hours prior to placement of neuraxial blockade. Um, If on a therapeutic or intermediate dose, meaning more significant dose of unfractionated heparin or weight-based dosing of low molecular weight heparin, there should be a 24-hour delay prior to neuraxial blockade. Unfractionated heparin can resume one hour after catheter removal, whereas low molecular weight heparin can resume four hours after catheter removal. The final contraindication to regional anesthesia in some instances is a space-occupying brain lesion because of the risk of dural puncture leading to increased intracranial pressure and hindbrain herniation. Right, that brings us to the very end. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, go ahead and go on to our iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or you can find us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Send us some support and we'll send you some swag. 
for this episode and every other episode, we also have adjunct learning materials. Go ahead and go onto our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Finally, if you have a correction for this episode or any of our previous episodes, or just want to send us an idea, a suggestion, or a correction, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 